Okay. I have this great, great yeah. carve out. I don't know what it's called, but it's you should go uh, download it and I, pay I money. I didn't write down the title. Uh, I wanted to make sure I got it right. <laughs> <clears throat> Welcome back to episode 36 of Acquired, the podcast about technology acquisitions and IPOs. I'm Ben Gilbert. I'm David Rosenthal. And we are your hosts. Today's episode, David and I are venturing away from technology into the world of sports. We'll be talking about Steve Ballmer's 2014 purchase of the Los Angeles Clippers. So for full disclosure here, David and I are not huge NBA fans. (laughs) Uh, Well, maybe except for my unapologetic bandwagon fanhood of the Cavs and LeBron James. And I got to admit, the Warriors are pretty fun to watch. Yeah, well, they're changing the game. So, and, we'll and Steph Curry is awesome. <laughs> but we do love digging into the analysis of any acquisition, and there's no shortage of writing and opinion on this one. And uh, we're going to be doing some episodes on the overlap of sports and tech in the near future. So we figured we would dive in just absolutely headfirst and uh, kind of force ourselves to do all the research. And thanks to um, many acquired listeners and uh, many of, of David and my friends who we uh, we called in to get their kind of like hardcore sports opinions on uh, on all this. Yeah. Open invitation listeners to get in touch with us by email or, or jump in the Slack and uh, tell us where we went wrong. But, but we think this will be really fun we've done a bunch of kind of serious more hard-hitting episodes in a row and we wanted to do something light and uh given that the nba playoffs start literally today uh we thought this would be a fun one yeah and i think um you know this was a two billion dollar uh purchase by steve Ballmer, and anytime there's a two billion dollar transaction going on involving steve Ballmer, right involving steve Ballmer, you know whether it's sports or airlines like we did with the the, the virgin uh, alaska acquisition or any of our you know standard tech wheelhouse um we can definitely apply the uh the acquired methodology to it and, and, and get some good discussion in so um a few things before we dive in the lifeblood of the show is uh is iTunes reviews. So please help us uh grow the show and and um if you're so inclined leave an iTunes review for us. We also have a Slack and we are close to 600 people. So if you enjoy doing um uh, analysis of any tech event, there's there's people in there talking about M&A events, about IPOs, about new product launches, about Star Wars trailers coming out. If uh, if you want to talk with uh, other nerds about this sort of stuff, we are all hanging out in the Acquired Slack, which you can join at acquired.fm. And uh, lastly, before we we dive into the acquisition history and facts, um, SVB is sponsoring this episode, Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, we uh, we caught up with uh, SVB's managing director out of Orange County, Derek Hoyt. I want to have him tell you a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank. Most people know Silicon Valley Bank as the bank of the innovation economy. What's something that you think would be helpful to our listeners, even if they're not looking to open a bank account for their business, you know, right now at this point in time? You know, one thing that that SVB does have is a a number of signature research reports that are are for companies across the innovation ecosystem from startup to much later stage. And it's it's probably fair to say that those insights that we get by being the dominant player in the space can provide real value and, and timely information for both entrepreneurs and investors. And uh, so I would just suggest people uh, head over to svb.com and and look for something that they would definitely find interesting. Awesome. Thanks, Derek. And thanks, SVB. So now, without further ado, David, will you uh, will you take us into the story? 
in the history and facts in the wide world of sports. So the Los Angeles Clippers were actually founded as the Buffalo Braves, Buffalo, New York, in 1970. They were one of three expansion teams to join the NBA that year. And um, they had modest success in the first year, but uh, in some foreshadowing of, of things to come uh, for the team uh, and, and some challenging decades ahead, um, they, were, they were obviously in, in Buffalo. Uh, they, they found it hard to schedule home games in the first couple of years because there was another basketball team in town, the Kansas Golden Griffins, uh, the the well known and world famous Golden Griffins. Oh yeah, it's just like uh, very similar to their rivalry now with the uh, the Lakers, where you know they're they're yeah, uh, right. you know Lakers, Griffins, yeah. Clippers, <laughs> both trying to draw millions and millions of people to their their uh, their out of their, as well. Yeah, <laughs> the Golden Griffins had pre existing rights to uh, priority on games in the arena in Buffalo. And uh, they were worried about the Braves kind of threatening their popularity in town. And so they would always schedule all the best dates <laughs> at the arena. And, uh, and as, as such, the Braves couldn't really develop much of a fan base. So this was a problem. And, and the team, after just a couple of years, gets sold um, to the then owner of the Kentucky Colonels, uh, which I, I believe is a basketball team, was a basketball team, John Brown Jr., And he really wanted to move the team uh, for obvious reasons. And so what he decided to do in further foreshadowing of things to come for the the hapless Clippers, uh, future Clippers, he basically just decimated the team's roster, traded away all the stars, and... um, and and as a result attendance plummeted uh, and basically nobody came and that was all his goal so that they could uh, they could break the lease and move out of town so a couple more years go by and in 1978 uh brown actually he did he he sw- only in the 70s could something like this happen he he just trades ownership with the owner of the Celtics so brown takes over the Celtics and Irv what? Levin who lived in southern california and owned the Celtics at the time. He wanted to move the Celtics to Southern California, um, but the NBA wasn't going to let that happen. Uh, <laughs> Levin takes over. Uh, what? I, I I saw that they moved to become the San Diego Clippers, but it was via uh, just an ownership swap yep, via with the swap. Celtics. Everybody's happy. Uh, and uh, and uh, Levin takes <laughs> over the Braves, moves them to San Diego, where they changed the name to the San Diego Clippers because of the impressive um, sailboats that would uh, would dock and sail through the, the bay in San Diego. So thus the Clippers are born or reborn. So that was in 1978, but the team unfortunately didn't get much better. And in 1981, the team's still struggling and a Los Angeles lawyer and real estate developer by the name of Donald Sterling, the infamous Donald Sterling, um, and we don't really talk much about like, <laughs> we don't really, we're not in the business of making judgment calls on people's character here on Acquired, but this one's pretty unambiguous that Donald Sterling is, is basically a yep. horrible human being. Yep. And, uh, it is incredible how long it took for that to come to light. Listeners will, will get into this, but despite lots of, uh, of rumors and allegations over the years, he sort of managed to scoot by Scott free after, um, it being quite clear he was a, a huge racist. Yeah. Well, we'll get into it. And, 
the crazy thing is like everybody knew but he just still owned the clippers anyway he buys the clippers in 1981 for 12 and a half million and uh he this was also I, i thought hilarious in the introductory news conference in san diego where where he announces he lives in la by the way uh that he's buying the clippers he vows to spend quote unlimited sums to build the clippers into a contender he later becomes famous for like spending no money on the clippers uh, on on players you know it seemed to plague their entire existence yeah and then he launches an advertising campaign in in san diego um where he puts he puts his face uh donald sterling's face on billboards and on buses around town with a quote (laughs) under it saying my promise i will make you proud of the clippers what yeah that's what every fan of every sports team wants to see a gigantic picture of the owner's face yeah <laughs> nailed it know your audience well if the owner is steve bomber then maybe but <laughs> <laughs> um so that honeymoon doesn't last long and in 1984 he just up and moves the clippers to la against the nba's wishes um he basically does it illegally by the 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 league's bylaws and uh and the way he gets around it is he just sues the league the league you know finds him a huge amount of money and he's like okay fine i'm gonna sue you and so he sues them for a hundred million dollars uh and they stand down and they they reduce the fine to him for for basically stealing (laughs) absconding with the clippers from san diego and moving them up to la boy storied franchise right like all this all these moves ownership trades ridiculous lawsuits Sounds just like a tech company. <laughs> yeah, right. Boy, seeming more and more a perfect fit for acquired than we thought. Than we thought. Than we thought. So from there, uh, we can basically just fast forward through the next thirty some odd years because Hint, nothing they, happens. They didn't do very well. Yeah. They. 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 <laughs> so they go to the playoffs four times in the next twenty five years, um, which is pretty bad. Uh, and and actually in the whole so. Sterling owns the Clippers from 81 until 2014 when this horrible event happens that we're about to describe. Um, the Clippers actually have the worst winning percentage of any team in any major American sport, which is which is incredible. Well, that's a feat. That's like, yeah, uh, that's that's more like statistically difficult to achieve than mediocrity. <laughs> it's, you have to work really hard to be that bad. Um, in 2009, yeah. ESPN names the Clippers the worst franchise in professional sports. Um, and Sterling, you know, continues his Sterling reputation for being a horrible human being. Um, he actually, get this, you know, he's the owner, right? He has courtside seats to every game. He, at some point in the 2000s, late 2000s, just starts heckling his own players class He's like spike lee but like for his own team <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> you can't make this up class act i mean honestly it's it's incredible that they played on the same floor at the staples center as that uh that the lakers did a franchise like that like it's a privilege to get to play in the staples center and that's what they did with it yeah so after the the staples center is built in the early 2000s the Clippers share it with the Lakers. But again, the Lakers are the marquee team. They have the lease. And so just like just like back in back in Buffalo, uh, they can't get the good dates and and they're basically just the second, you know, not even the second. They're pretty far down the list of things to do in LA um, as far <laughs> as sporting events go. But then magically, really against um, despite all of Sterling's efforts to <laughs> continually sabotage the team, in the early 2010s, 
things actually start to get better. So they, through a combination of some good draft picks and and good trades, they get Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, and Chris Paul. Um, and they actually start to build a pretty good team. And in 2013, they win the first division title in in team history, and uh, and are and are off to the playoffs. Yeah, things are things are looking up for uh, for the Clippers. It seems like they've got momentum on their side. Maybe the organization finally uh, is working in lockstep on the business side. Um, you know, the after all these years in the moves. In, yeah in the woods, uh, you know, and, and actually this is when. Um, What's their coach's name? Doc uh, Doc, Rivers Doc Rivers comes in yep. as, uh, as uh, to coach the team, right? And he's also what president of basketball operations. I think that's right. I, I'm not sure if the dates are if it was that year that he was in it, which leads into the next season um, after their sort of best season in perhaps ever in 2013 for the first time they win the division title. At the end of the 2014, they have another good season. They're bound for the playoffs. And then on April 25th, 2014, uh, the LA News uh, channel and website TMZ releases a bombshell, uh, a taped phone conversation with Donald Sterling and between him and his mistress, he's married but estranged from his wife and his uh, open relationship with a, with a mistress, again, gem of a human being here, um, and as Ben mentioned, uh, you know, it was sort of, you know, known but swept under the rug that Sterling had been you know, really racist uh, for a very long time. Um, this uh, this phone conversation TMZ releases in which he reprimands his his mistress for posting an Instagram photo with her and Magic Johnson. Um, and he reprimands uh, his mistress for posting this photo with, uh, you know, this is a quote here, broadcasting that she is associating with black people and that he did not want her to bring them to the team's games. This guy's off his rocker. Like, Despicable what? in in every sense. <laughs> not, But he's an NBA owner and this is a photo with Magic Johnson, um, you know, Hall of Famer Magic Johnson. Um, so needless to say, this uh, this is not going to end well for Sterling. No, no. You know, as you can imagine, the the NBA is is not too pleased about this. No, uh, nobody is pleased about this. So, <laughs> uh, in fact, in fact, this is this is a uh, this is awesome. The Clippers players are so displeased about this that on the twenty seventh, so this um, comes to light on the twenty fifth. On the twenty seventh. They warmed up for their playoff game on Sunday afternoon against the Warriors with their their shooting shirts worn inside out to obscure the team logo to not represent um, Donald Sterling and and sort of the logo that he owns. Yeah, it, it's incredible. And and that was they decided to do that. They considered before they decided to play the game. They considered boycotting the game and and forfeiting oh, the man. game. Which was, you know, a playoff game and, and a playoff game for the Clippers is such a huge, uh, huge event. Yeah, you got to imagine the teams like, no, we've worked worked way too hard for this to, yeah. you know. But that's how serious, you know, this was. Obviously, uh, you know, yeah. sponsors, most of the major sponsors with the team, you know, announced they were severing ties, and then really, you know, the NBA handled this horrible situation as well as you could uh, commend them for it. And and Adam Sterling, the the commissioner. I think deserves um, Adam Silver. Uh, Adam Silver, sorry, yes, <laughs> not Adam Silver. Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner uh, at the time and still currently, deserves huge credit for this. So, less than a week later, 
on April 29th, after an investigation that the NBA launched right away, the NBA issues a lifetime ban of of Donald Sterling from the game and fines him two and a half million dollars, bars him from attending games, practices, any event involving any NBA team, bars him from being present in any Clippers office or facility from and from participating in any team business, player personnel decisions or any league activity. And that two and a half million dollar fine is the maximum allowable fine by the NBA. You, you could imagine uh, uh, that could be much higher if there wasn't guide, guidelines yeah, there. Absolutely. And then in a press conference following announcing this ban, Adam Silver, the commissioner, uh, states that he is he is planning and he will try to force Sterling to sell the Clippers and that they are basically going to kick him out of the league, which the league can do uh, with a three quarters vote of the other 29 team owners which they do Uh, yeah that's super interesting and i you know i i think i remember so when this all went down i remember reading about it briefly but uh, diving into all the details has been super interesting to understand how the mechanics of all this go down so when you own an nba franchise it's truly that a franchise i mean you can imagine it's like owning a, a mcdonald's where um, yes, you've poured all this money into this thing and you own this asset, but there's actually a, a you know, corporate governance structure uh, uh, above you that can force a lot of decisions with, uh, uh, you know, in this case, a three quarters vote. Like, yes, you own that team, but if three quarters of the other owners don't want you to own that team, then you don't get to own that team. Yeah, it'd be like if there were uh, like a social network council that, uh, you know, if uh, Snapchat or Instagram did something <laughs> horrible and Facebook and and google and twitter could could make them sell the company (laughs) (laughs) and this is so this is now where we sort of pick up from the acquired standpoint and where things get interesting so obviously this is a distressed sale um you have a a, a terrible situation going on well you you would think it'd be a like okay we'll get more into this but like it should it should it should be a low price right right? because it's like a fire sale fire sale team has to get sold it's the clippers right i mean they're they are literally the joke the punchline of every joke about being a bad team is like well at least you're you know not as bad as the clippers you would think that this is going to be like the cleveland browns of basketball (laughs) even worse you would think this would be a (laughs) a uh, a fire sale but there are quite a few people who are interested in buying the team including um reportedly oprah winfrey floyd mayweather magic johnson himself several other bidding groups and steve bomber our hero he is also very interested he has at this point left microsoft retired as ceo satya nadella has succeeded him Um, that happened just a couple months earlier in february of 2014 and bomber has been a lifelong basketball fan twice in seattle he tried to first save be part of a group to save the sonics from leaving seattle a dark dark day in seattle history when the sonics left to become the oklahoma city thunder right after they drafted kevin durant too terrible and uh and then and then once more uh, as part of another ownership group that attempted to buy the sacramento kings and move them to seattle so this is bomber's third bite at the apple to own an nba franchise and he is not going to be denied in true steve bomber fashion Uh, to be a homer here it's such a shame that he couldn't get it done in seattle i mean i really thought uh I really thought that that ownership group to to move the Kings up here and build the new Sonics arena was going to happen, but well, you know, shed a tear. I think uh, 
if there's any solace, it's that it, it does seem to be, a, at least according to Bill Simmons, the oracle on all such matters. Um, I think there's there's a good chance that Seattle will get an expansion team at some point in the next couple of years, which it absolutely deserves. Um, yeah, still a basketball city. Yeah, people love the Sonics. You see people wearing Sonics gear all over the place still. Um, yeah. So uh, Steve comes in with a pretty over-the-top bid. So Forbes uh, magazine does an annual valuation of all, and, and it's just you know numbers they make up, but it's kind of the best source of, of valuation of, of sports franchises across all, all sports. And they had that year valued the Clippers at $575 million, um, which was 13th in the NBA. And well behind the number one valued team, the highest valued team, which was the Knicks in New York, which they had at one point four billion. So Bomber comes in with a bid of and, two billion. So not just it's amazing how much the market matters, right? Like it's the Clippers. Now, I mean, for sure they've gotten some great players recently. They've started having some momentum. You know, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, Chris Paul. But like, they're still the Clippers in the Lakers market. And they're, you know, in the top half of the NBA teams because LA is just, just a ridiculous a market. market. Yep. Yep. And, and, but, but this kind of blows everybody out of the water. No NBA team had ever sold for anywhere near that amount of money. The Milwaukee Bucks had sold earlier that year for 550 million. Um, so, you know, just over a quarter of that purchase price. And, uh, and at the time, everybody was pretty astounded by this. Yeah, I think the it's it's three and a half x the largest ever price tag for an NBA team before, and it's really interesting to note that you know this all sort of started happening recently. Where when you look at you know I, my comp for everything is is the Cavs. Um, when you look at uh, note for what, listeners, if if you if you aren't longtime listeners or don't know Ben, regardless, he is <laughs> he is a proud Ohio native. That's right. That's right. Cleveland till I die. So Dan Gilbert bought the Cavs for 185 million, um, but that was in 2005. And so when you start to look at like the escalating price tag of NBA franchises, um, it's all been in recent years, and it's it's uh, it's something that I kind of want to get to later in yeah, this episode and, and and try and dissect. You know why is that happening? Like, why is you know any NBA team potentially a good uh, a, a good pickup right now because of the direction and the growth of yeah, the league. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is you know again at the time people, which was only a couple of years ago, uh, three years ago now, people thought Bomber was crazy, and uh, and so we'll dive into that in a minute. But um, but just to wrap up, the Clippers have continued their you know if not dominance. Uh, not being the Clippers of, of, you know, of old at this point, they are in the playoffs again this year. It's their sixth straight year going to the playoffs after only doing it four times in 25 years in California. And, uh, it's their fifth straight year with over 50 wins in a season, which is pretty great. I mean, at this point they are, they are one of the best teams, uh, certainly in the Western conference, if not in the whole NBA. Well, so I think I have a little bit more bearish take on this, and we'll end up getting to this in, in the way that we grade the acquisition. But, I mean, they have incredible starting five. Like, they've done a nice job, especially with uh, Balmer ponying up to uh, um, to retain DeAndre Jordan. But there's no depth to that bench. 
Like there's not, they don't, their whole roster is not filled out with stars. And what I want to get to too is, you know, why is that the case? Why, why haven't they made the right, uh, the right player moves to, throughout the league to make that the case? And then on top of that, like they still haven't made an appearance in a Western, Western conference final. So like it's, it's definitely this story of incredible, you know, starting players, Potential, no depth. Yeah, that's not and, yet incre- But like, yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely not, um, um, a winning team yet in terms of uh, of playoff appearances yeah. and and you know finals appearances. So just to wrap up the history and facts, uh, just recently this year the 2017 version of the Forbes uh, NBA franchise valuations came out. The Clips are up to number six, but still at two billion, uh, the same mark, uh, the same price that Bomber paid for them three years ago. Um, but the rest of the list is pretty interesting. So the Knicks are still number one. And remember in 2014, they were 1.4 billion, I believe. And, uh, yeah, in 2014, they were 1.4 billion. They are now valued at 3.3 billion. So for all the other owners in the league, this was a pretty nice mark. They're all pretty happy right now. Yep. Yep. And I want to make a, a, a few points where we're still in, in acquisition history and facts. The this is like a I just have to read this this clip to um to underscore what a ridiculous transaction this was when when Steve bought the team from uh, the Sterlings as part of the deal Shelly Sterling gets t- the titles of owner emeritus and Clippers number one fan as well as ten tickets in section one hundred one or one eleven for all Clippers games two courtside tickets for all games in Los Angeles, six parking spots in lot C for each game, 12 VIP passes that include access to the Lexus club, arena club, or chairman's lounge and media room or equivalent for each staples games, three championship rings following any Clippers title and will run a yet to be named charitable foundation. (laughs) So like what, why is that part of the transaction and why does she get Clippers rings? Like or, or championship she rings. Is, she is Donald Sterling's estranged wife. Uh, for uh, I don't know if we we clarified that earlier. Um, and she kind of ran the sales process uh, on the behalf of the team because um, because Donald himself actually you know was super resistant. Ended up suing the NBA, suing everybody involved. But fortunately, has pretty much ridden off to the sunset at this point. Yeah, yeah, and I think. Um uh, it, it's really worth like uh, to me a big sticking point of this whole transaction is it should have been a fire sale it was under intense duress there was still incredible bidding for this thing and they you know and, and Balmer paid almost 4x the the highest transaction ever for and gave up six parking and, spaces in perpetuity <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right and think about the diamonds on those championship rings you know yeah but the thing that that sticks with me about that is it, it's a limited supply thing, right? Like this is a team in a major market with a sport that has risen dramatically in popularity and in 2014 looked like um, it was only going to continue to have uh, more uh, uh, more lucrative TV deals to come. And that leads itself to, you know, that with incredible supply constraint, that there's there's more there's a lot of five plus billionaires out there that would like to own a team and there's a very limited number of big market teams that they could own so in in considering this i mean in in grading this acquisition later like one thing that we should keep in mind is uh whether or not it's actually the um you know the best place to park your money 
th- it's a very exclusive club of people that that uh, own teams like this and not every billionaire can get in yeah and it actually reminds me a lot of the other non-technology um, well one of the other non-technology episodes we've done on this show which was uh, alaska buying virgin america and uh, what we realized in in that show is how important the the quote unquote real estate of of gate access and gate control at airports um, was. And there's just yeah. a limited number of gates at airports, and that was probably the biggest reason we concluded why Alaska bought Virgin. Um, and it's a similar situation here. There's just a limited real estate. Yep, and they don't often come up for sale. Yep, and uh, and a bunch of other themes that we'll we'll get into later in the show but um yeah but let's move here's 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 another thing that i found really interesting in the forbes list i would not have projected this at first and it started to make more sense when i was thinking about it but nba teams on average i mean this is kind of eyeballing i should i should crunch the numbers but it looked like the valuations of these teams are about 10x their revenues and about 15x their operating income and for anybody who's building a software business, you know, you're thinking, oh, my SaaS business is probably going to get like a three to five X revenue multiple or my, I guess I just, I just wouldn't have expected that these sports teams would uh, like have a 15 X operating income multiple. And in, in kind of talking through it with, uh, um, with other friends before this show, it kind of makes sense because you would think like, okay, what, uh, am I sure that this B2B SaaS company is going to be around in, in 15 years? No. Am I pretty sure that this NBA franchise is going to be around and generating somewhere in this neighborhood of, of operating income that it is right now, give or take 20%? Yes. Like this is such a sports franchises are such a enduring part of the fabric of a city and the fabric of of American culture that you know we just trust that these things are going to continue to be around and continue to be popular. Yeah. Um, well, I think there's another really key element to analyzing this transaction, um, which we well, let's get into now, and, and we can continue to discuss throughout the show, which is growth, right? I mean, when you're talking about multiples you know, multiples, whether it be of, you know, of, of EBITDA or operating income or, or revenue, what they really are in terms of valuations is, is a proxy for, you know, your expected cash flows over the future, you know, the, the discounted uh, cash flows in, in the future, which is the theory of how you, how you value companies. And, and multiples are just sort of putting your finger in the air and, and guessing, you know, kind of how much growth you're going to have in your cash flows over the next several years and how much that's going to be worth to your bottom line in, in terms of the valuation of the company. What's really interesting is the growth in the MBA over the last few years and how much, and I, I wish I had harder numbers on this. I don't, maybe, I don't know if you do Ben or, or if our listeners do, um, oh, feel free to, we can, uh, we can pop into the Slack after and chat with listeners. Yeah. About hop it. in the Slack. But, um, to me, the most interesting part of this storyline is that the NBA has emerged really since Bomber acquired the Clippers. Um, I don't think this is causal, but maybe he might have seen this as I think the most innovative sports uh, league uh, sport in the world and that has been experiencing the most growth and experiencing the most growth among young viewers, uh, which is the future. The, the data I do have is that According to Nielsen, um, the NBA has the youngest audience of any of the major sports in America, 
and has almost half of its viewers under 35, which is you know definitely not the case with with baseball is probably the oldest um, but not football not hockey there is a lot of growth happening in the nba right now and it'd be fun for us to dig into why yeah i mean it's i I, i'd caveat all this with uh the youngest age and the fastest growth of any physical sport i'd say uh uh, league of legends and counter-strike well right um (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think uh, i'd love to love to do a future episode on on esports but we'll scope it to uh traditional sports for for this episode yeah I think, yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, Ben, acquisition category. Yeah, um, this is a business line. I, I mean, it's, it's like, it's kind of hard to fit our, our yeah. well, normal structure a, to it. Like, it's, it's, I mean, well, I guess actually, the other thing you could argue is asset. Yeah, yeah. And actually, from a um, technical perspective, uh, the way that, let me see if I can find this. It's a quote from, I think it's a Forbes article. Mr. Balmer, 58, is likely to enjoy significant personal financial benefits. When an investor purchases a sports team, he can attribute a large part of the purchase price to the player contracts he is acquiring. As those contracts expire, their depreciation can offset income. So it kind of is interesting to think about it like you're buying something that largely consists of depreciating assets. Hmm. Interesting. I, I'm still calling it a business line because I think all the all the future growth is being able to turn that flywheel of the franchise and leverage that brand to get more players, to get more fans, and and to turn that flywheel. And that that all is is part of one one business line. But you know, I think uh, it it is interesting that from a technical perspective, um, as players age, they are depreciating assets. Yeah. Well, and. Um well, this is this will lead right into one of my tech themes in a minute. But um, should we stop for a moment on what would have happened otherwise? I mean, it was clear the sale was going to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, uh, wait, where, are, real quick, are you saying business line also? Um, am I saying business line or asset? Um, yeah, I think I'll say I, I'll, I'll say business line because I think these are you know sports teams traditionally have been viewed as assets you know you don't buy sports teams to make money you know is is the uh, traditional view on the space it's billionaires who want to play and and have fun and have a retirement gig um but i think that might be changing you know i mean with the growth and and the tech teams we'll talk about um i think there's a bright future ahead for for sports franchises as businesses and as global businesses uh that we'll get Hmm. into in a minute so Hmm. yeah business line cool um, it, it, moving into what would have happened otherwise, I think we should we should focus more on the team than on what Steve Ballmer could have done with his money. But it is interesting that uh, according to that Forbes list, at least, um, you know, the, the the business hasn't appreciated at all. And if uh, he had just parked it in an, um, an S&P index fund from that day that he bought it until today, the day that we were recording, it would have been a, a 20.8% return. So l- like you're saying, at least in, um, in, in the short term so far, from what we can see in terms of actual appreciation of uh, of the estimated value of the asset that is the team that he bought um you know not the best place to park your money for an investment yep all right should we move on into tech themes yeah i mean it's probably worth what would have uh, one, one thing that i also had in what would have happened otherwise is what has steve Ballmer done for the team that another owner couldn't like what if it did you know fall into the hands of another another bidder like would we would we see the diving save to to re-sign deandre jordan and stop him from um going to the mavericks like would we see i think one thing that's interesting about 
potentially advantageous for the Clippers of of having Steve Ballmer own the team is that number one, he's ridiculously involved and much more so than I think most most owners are, and probably maybe even to a fault. <laughs> but are you speaking but on from top experience of that, like, at Microsoft? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I, I really think um, this was t- chatting with someone that has a, a close friend in the uh, in the Clippers organization. And uh, just that it was a little like disruptive in the the off the operations of the business when he took over that he was just involved in in so much of it. Um, so you know, for better or for worse, he's much more involved than another owner would be. But he also he employed a similar strategy to the one that he employed at Microsoft for M and A. You know, in 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 making a, an over the top bid for Skype to to yep. just end all negotiations. Like he yep. did the same thing with the Clippers here, and in, in bidding twenty percent over the next highest bidder. And you know, the man has nineteen billion dollars, and this is what he's going to do for maybe the rest of his life. And he has expressed over and over again that he uh, he has always wanted to own an NBA team, but um, he had he he couldn't because his day job kept him too busy before. And uh, I I think that his willingness to go above and beyond, even when it may not make like obvious financial sense when you like were if you really really dig into it like he's he's able and willing to write really big checks because it could have a really big payoff like if he can win the clippers a championship ring then you know he's a total hero uh and he, he may actually like all this may turn out to be a, a great investment for him so i yeah. think that w- one thing to think about is like he his um, liberal sort of the looseness with the the purse strings, especially compared to their <laughs> previous ownership, is really beneficial for the team. Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, Bombers. Uh, let's talk about Bombers' personality here for a minute, which we we can't end the show without without talking about. Um, no. Uh, but but I want to talk about Bombers' personality and compare it to Mark Zuckerberg's, uh, who is you know as we've talked about on this show probably the acquirer the ceo of of an acquiring company whose style we've analyzed most on this show and zuckerberg is equally very very aggressive and willing to come in with very high prices but he's sort of like the silent killer type you know he doesn't say a lot uh he kind of comes down he flies down to he likes to buy southern california companies or or try to buy southern california companies he flies <laughs> down to the meeting you know and he says you know hey well I'm going to crush you or I'm going to help you. And like, you know, here's the number. It's a lot of money. Like, let's get this done. But, uh, uh, but the thing about Zuckerberg, you know, I think with some potential missteps thus far, as we talked about on Oculus in the last episode, like his judgment and, and, and uh, is generally pretty spot on. He's been right a lot more than he's been wrong with these things. Bomber is a very, uh, I wouldn't say that his judgment is is bad, but but he takes a very different stylistic approach to being an aggressive acquirer. He is loud, he is boisterous, uh, he is, you know, there is, <laughs> we will link to in the show notes, uh, very famous for his public persona and um, his developers, 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 developers chant, his uh, his jumping up and down on stage, and, and, and that's just him too. I mean, we've, we've both, uh, you know, cross paths with him in, in Seattle and elsewhere in our, in our travels. And, um, you know, you have a conversation with him and he just oozes enthusiasm. Um, yep. And, uh, and that's what he's bringing to the Clippers. Yep. And one, um, yeah, you're absolutely right on that. I mean, he, he's, uh, you know, he's still, 
I think he actually jumped on a trampoline and dunked when they were announcing the new uh, Clippers mascot. I mean, he yeah. still does the the the, the standard bomber lean back in the middle of an arena full of people and yell and you know fling his arms around and talk about it. I love the Clippers. I love this company. I love this company. <laughs> so great, you know, drenched that, in sweat. Ugh. Yes, Dude, yes. His, he is true to his style, and you know he's his. Uh, Love him or hate him, his his uh, passion is infectious, and I think um, one other point that I wanted to make before moving out of this, what would have happened otherwise, is uh, basketball fans will know that will note that um, there's a uh, not unprecedented but uncommon thing going on within the Clippers organization where um, Doc Rivers is both the head coach and sort of the the president GM role, and typically the the president GM role handles you know, um, making the right player acquisitions, signing the right contracts, making the trades, doing a lot of the work on the draft to, to fill out the roster and, and kind of handle the sort of the business of the team and the business of making sure the team is in a place that can win. And then the coach is in charge of, of, of you know, the um, actually dealing with the players and the strategy and, and working with the GM. And in this case, uh, Balmer gave Doc kind of, all of that power as coach and president. And what that probably ends up looking like, since he's so involved, is Balmer making a lot of the the business decisions and then also having, you know, Doc potentially split his time too much. So, you know, I would say what would have happened otherwise, a different owner may have actually brought in a GM and, um, you know, and, and added a little bit more depth to the uh, depth to the roster and potentially just, you know, had a little bit more basketball expertise in there. Yep. Um, but that is not Steve's style. It is not. It is not. So uh, uh, should we move on to themes? Let's do it. Okay. So here's my theme for this episode. And and again, listeners that are closer to the basketball world would love your input. I think this purchase, uh, certainly as we've talked about, it reset the landscape of valuations for NBA franchises. And there is a you know, kind of real estate component to it uh, and that there are a limited number of NBA teams and a lot of billionaires out there with a lot of time uh, and a lot of ego. But here's what's really interesting, I think, going on in, in sports and, and perhaps perhaps even more so, well, certainly in the, in the game, uh, in basketball more than any other sport right now, there is a ton of innovation happening. And, and I think there is business model innovation that is happening in sports right now in in american sports for the last 50 plus years 50 60 years there's been this huge and ben thompson has, has written about this um this huge symbiotic relationship and, and flywheel between the television industry the sports industry and the advertising industry you know the auto industry the um the beer industry the <laughs> the retailer industry and, and that has been a very tight coupling where you have sports being the, the biggest TV events, you know, the literally the Super Bowl moments that bring huge scale, mass scale audiences that advertisers of mass products advertise on. And that's starting to break down uh, today as the internet is pushing farther into entertainment. We've talked about this a lot in our various Facebook episodes and Snapchat, of course, and the opportunity to disrupt TV. But what's happening at the same time over the last few years is 
in one sense, that's very threatening to the business model of sports because the vast majority of the revenue comes from TV. But they've been developing streaming and direct subscription revenue and direct customer relationships as part of the product on the side. And I think that is a huge opportunity. Um, you know, we've Ben and I talked a lot about we debated doing this episode on Major League Baseball Advanced Media, which which changed its name to BamTech that provides the technology for streaming behind this. And, and we want to do a future episode on it. But the ability, you know, for, for Major League Baseball charges, uh, I believe it's $150 a year for this incredible product where you can stream any game at any time, anywhere in the world. And they make so much money off of that from their engaged customer base and have a direct customer relationship. Um, that's a bright future for sports. And I wonder if Bomber came in and bought this team for what seemed like a huge amount of money at the time. But if and as this transition happens, this might be the path for sports teams to become real businesses. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know exactly why the, um, there's so much more money in the TV rights for these teams than there was five years ago. I mean, one, one thing I could speculate is that with most shows, uh, people cord cutting means that live doesn't matter as much and that they're down to watch almost all programming on, you know, Netflix, Amazon. Well, to, to be um, clear, HBO, I think there are two things going watch. on. The TV rights are staying the same or, 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 and, and growing as sports are becoming the only thing that people keep their TV subscriptions for. Um, yes. But the leagues themselves on the back of BamTech are end arounding, you know, disrupting themselves in that business model and offering these direct subscription packages to customers with this big revenue stream that they still sell advertising on. But now they also, they're basically disrupting ESPN, you know, and ESPN makes <laughs> so yeah. much money is by far the largest and most profitable cable channel on the back of sports. And the leagues, I think, are starting to realize that they can they can cut ESPN right out of that and make both the advertising money 100% of it and the subscription money. Right, because in that subscription money, they're commanding more power uh, in the bundle as they are the reason that people want linear television and, and you know want that live experience. And, and uh, yeah, that, so it's, it's, they're, they're winning on two fronts there. Yeah. Yeah, because the point I'm, I'm trying to make is they're still getting the ESPN juice and they are also like all getting a ton of money from people that are buying League Pass who are, and those people are also buying cable and paying money to, to ESPN too, right? So like these sports leagues for the next couple of years are just going to be raking in the money. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I had the exact same... Uh, um, tech theme as you on this one i mean i think uh i have it much more high level as just that the uh the nba's broadcast rights are getting more valuable but i think you nailed exactly why that is so the one other tech theme i want to cover quickly that i feel very unqualified to opine on other than i see it happening and it's so fun to watch is how the product how the game on the court um is also had so yes. much innovation over the last couple of years and yes and, you know, seem driven. Well, th there's the whole Moneyball aspect, and and what you know the Rockets uh, started doing, and and bringing kind of statistical analysis to front office management of of teams. 
Um, but then there's also literally the game on the court, which the Warriors have just completely changed. And, and I love watching that. And that's what's so rare in sports, I feel, these days. And to me, why? Um, there are many reasons why, but you know, I grew up loving baseball, playing baseball, and I still love baseball. But it's hard to watch because there's so little innovation in how the game is played. But, uh, but basketball is so dynamic right now. Yeah. And you know, when it's funny, I probably 10, 15 years ago, I was saying, I don't really love the NBA. I like watching college basketball more because it's real basketball and watching the NBA is watching a few superstars travel all over the place, dunk, and then have, you know, like wait around at the top of the key for the shot clock to stick down, drive, and then dunk. And it's like, okay, well, we, we know what's going to happen every time. The refs are going to be really nice to these few players. And I think that what we've seen happen is it's just a much more fast-paced, dynamic game where there's a lot more of, you know, they're passing the ball around, there's a lot more ball movement, um, that they're they're optimizing for exactly the three-pointers they should be taking, not taking the ones that they shouldn't be taking. And they're really, I mean, there's a lot of data science applied to this uh, from a technical perspective, Absolutely. but then from an intuition perspective, you just have, you know, your Steph Curry's that, that um, you know, come together on a team like the Warriors to really change how the, how the game is played. And if I have any gripes about my own team, like about the way that the Cavs play, it's that uh, they're very, very fortunate to have LeBron. And it's, it's unclear yep. if, um, I mean, they're, they're still kind of playing that, that older style of play. Yep, they are. And, and I think again, with a, uh, Avoiding the temptation to dive too deep into analyzing these aspects of the game because I'm not qualified. <laughs> David and I are so, <laughs> so far off of what we should be but talking about right that, now. <laughs> I really hope that other sports, and, and you know, certainly I am much more qualified to talk about baseball and football, having played both myself for close to 15 years. There's, there's, there's just been no innovation in, in either of them, really, in, in terms of how the game is played. And I hope these other sports and managers and, and coaches in other sports at all levels can look at the NBA and say there is so much value and power in in not ha- feeling like we have to stick to tradition and the way it's always been done in how these games are played and that that fans will react super positively and love new innovations i mean stuff like you know in baseball like you should never bunt it's like statistically proven that bunting is is terrible um just like in football like you should go for it on fourth down way more often than people do but but they're such conservative environments that people don't do these things and i hope the nba is is going to drive some more innovation in other sports as well as as people see how well audiences react to it Yep. And I think the the NFL had an amazing 20 year run up to call it, you know, five years ago, where they really turned the NFL into a family sport. It's not the thing that dad does and drinks beer on the weekend with buddies at the game. Like, it's a thing that like they've really turned it into a family product where, you know, you have people over and the whole family gets into it. And they're the the broadcast is much more tailored around entertainment than it is like a gridiron sport. And, you know, the Super Bowl is the the best implementation of that. But I don't think we've seen much evolution beyond that yet. Like, I think the NFL is riding high now, but the basketball, uh, but the NBA is is more the stock that I would buy right now. Yeah. Well, and the NFL has a huge liability on their hands um, that I don't yeah. see any way out of it with the concussion uh, issues. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I played football for over 10 years myself throughout middle school, high school, college, and... Uh, loved it but if i could go back and and you know make those decisions again back in at every level i I would i would not play it's just not worth the risk 
Yeah. And honestly, watching some of your investment decisions, it's it's pretty clear to me that uh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. Know, it wasn't worth the risk. <laughs> Just imagine how good I'd be <laughs> if I hadn't played football. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, should we uh, should we go into grading it? Yeah, let's go into grading it. All right. Well, uh, one thing I want to bring up is that from one uh, listener and friend of the show that uh, I'll just I'll just read his quote because he had a really interesting insight here that we haven't talked about yet, and that's that uh, the most interesting phase is coming soon when JJ Redick is likely to sign for more money elsewhere. Blake and CP3, Chris Paul, are free agents, and how will the franchise move on if one or both of those guys leave? That's the challenge for Balmer. And I think, you know, not Dave and I are not probably here to speculate about the the future player moves of the team. But it is interesting to think about something that's going to knock some points off my grade is is definitely um, the the lack of a true president GM in place here to to, you know, keep a good handle and a good pipeline on all these these uh, depth chart moves. Yeah, but I I do think I think this will be the true test for Bomber as an owner, right? Uh, and where if we're gonna like we reserve the right to with tech companies, if we reserve the right to change our grades in the future, would be his reaction to this. I think it gets back to management and lessons you know that are equally applicable to tech companies and startups, which is you know it's not always up and to the right. Things happen, right? Like your your star players become free agents yep. and they leave. Like you can't you can't change that. That just happens. That's life in a company. The test of of a management team and the company is how you react to that. And do you either, you know, give up and start heckling your players like Donald Sterling? Like that's that's one end of the spectrum. Um, you know, or do you do you support your employees and your your staff and your team and make the uh decisions sometimes hard to continue to do your best to put the put the team out there that's that's gonna win and and do that really thoughtfully and strategically like we like we saw you know facebook do throughout their ipo and and afterwards when they realized you know their uh uh, it was like they lost their stars in free agency as as the mobile wave was about to wash over them and they went out and they fixed it. Yep. Agreed. Well, so I'll I'll take a first stab at at the grade. We normally on acquired grade with the lens of was this a good financial decision for the acquiring company to acquire the acquired company? And the tack that I want to take on it for this episode is to take out the word financial. So we can say was this a good decision for Steve Ballmer to acquire the Clippers. And I think that, you know, the guy had $20 billion and the rest of his life in front of him. And I had a, another friend bring up this idea that it's incredibly rare that an opportunity like this comes on the market. And when you're already a billionaire, you know, buying and running a sports team is really only like the hard, th- the, it's like the only hard thing remaining for you to do. You're instantly <laughs> famous when, when you do this, right? Like you're, you know, Jerry Jones made all his money in oil, but then, you know, now he's, he's famously the Dallas Cowboys owner. And like, you can be a billionaire, but not have your name in lights. And I think that, you know, Balmer had a good amount of that already, but, but for him, you know, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? This is a really fun thing to do. And you're in this very, very, you know, exclusive club of, of, uh, um, you know, tier one market owners of, of franchises. And so there's like some amount of my grade that's going to come from, um, it's like an A in terms of how do you want to spend the rest of your life? And that, that is not necessarily a financial decision. On the financial decision, 
um, he really is bringing some innovation here. I mean, he's he's putting a lot of effort into it. I I disagree with them not having a a, a president. So you know, on the execution of actually doing this thing and and kind of furthering the turnaround of this team, I'll give it a B. But you know, if you if you have that much money and you want to buy a an NBA franchise and and make this your your you know second foray of life's work, certainly a fun way to do it. Yeah, um, I think I. I'm going to try and resist temptation to think about it outside of a business decision and think about it solely in terms of, you know, the price bomber paid. He he certainly probably could have gotten this team for a lot worse. I mean, that was, that was coming in hot with, uh, with that price, (laughs) Um, but he reset the market and, and it's risen to that level. And for all the reasons I talked about in, in tech themes and before, um, you know, I think he is kind of catching this wave at the right time where the leagues and um, the teams as as components of these sports leagues um, have a big technology enabled opportunity in front of them to, you know, change their business model, uh, disrupt themselves into something more valuable. So given that, I'm going to go with B plus because I think he's gotten all the fundamentals right there's execution that remains to be seen both on the product on the team side and 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 quite honestly on the business model for the league side too it's early days and i think he probably could have gotten the team for a lot less but to your point ben you know he he did not want to misfire on this one he wasn't going to lose and that is that is classic <laughs> steve bomber yep <laughs> all right uh follow-ups and hot takes we've got a few this week Instagram stories uh, was reported that Instagram stories now has more than 200 million DAU, uh, which is more than all of Snapchat, at least until we see Snapchat's uh, growth numbers for Q1, which they'll be reporting their earnings soon here. Uh, That'll be a big, big day for Snapstock. And associated with that, I uh, want to give a big shout out to listener, uh, a listener named Ross, who uh, very kindly wrote Ben and me uh, correcting us on our definition of DAU uh, that we've used a few times on this show, where we implied that wrongly that uh, DAU meant people users using it every single day doesn't necessarily mean that it's just the percentage of the user base that uh, the total user base that a product has that uses it on any given day so if half the half the user base uses it on one day and half the user base uses it on another day uh, and then they mix up and various portions of them on the third you can still have 50 percent dau to mau ratio um but with nobody using it on every single day so an important distinction thank you ross for pointing that out yep and uh one other uh, yeah i think we we do have one other follow-up from our early episodes there was a there was a little trailer that was released on the internet this week (laughs) yes i'm excited i'm scared i'm nervous i don't i don't know what to do with myself (laughs) other than watch the uh the new star wars trailer over and over and over again and wonder if it is christmas yet (laughs) is it christmas yet is going to take on a whole new meaning i'm so excited (laughs) yeah and i I, no spoilers on the trailer but like it all changes in the the, at the end so like it's worth watching multiple times and then reinterpreting it through that lens after seeing the end of the trailer i can't believe i'm giving spoiler alerts for a trailer (laughs) but like it's so well done it's that big yeah 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 i can't wait yep 
Another one is uh, the, another quick piece of follow-up from the Starbucks episode. Uh, one reason that the, the Starbucks IPO is so successful uh, that we didn't really touch on in grading it is, is because they delivered on a consistent basis financially for like many quarters after, after the offering. And they had like tens and tens and tens, or I think it was maybe even a hundred months of, uh, of um, month over month growth on average in same store sales. And so, you know, it's, 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 uh, if we ever do a similar analysis in the future of, um, you know, an, an expanding chain of stores, that's a, it's an interesting mark to keep in mind. And, you know, one David, one of the reasons we do this show is to try and understand what makes an acquisition successful, what makes an IPO successful and, and zooming in on that, uh, that metric of, even though you're opening multiple stores because you have more free cash flow to keep reinvesting, the average of of your same store sales across all stores continuing to rise is a really interesting um, piece to zoom in on and, and thing to shoot for. It uh, I- Indeed, it is incredibly impressive. Tens and tens and even up to 100 consecutive months of of same store growth it, it does help when you are literally selling drugs to your customers as starbucks does but <laughs> any anytime you can sell a legal drug it's probably a good business. probably a good business but there as we talked about on the episode there are so many more great lessons from from starbucks that that everyone can learn should we move on to carve outs yeah let's do it let's do it so i'll, I'll take a, a stab you guys know we love recommending podcasts uh, Bill Gurley was on Jason Calacanis's This Week in Startups this week. And uh, any anytime you get a chance to read some of Bill's writing on his blog or um, hear him, him speak on a podcast, it's, uh, it's a treat because he just has such incredible clarity of thought. And he walks through sort of the benchmark business model of really only investing in a couple companies per year and spending just an incredible amount of time um, embedded with those companies. And, uh, and, and actually I didn't know that much about Bill's background. We had, we had touched on, um, when we were, uh, when we had Tom Alberg on for the Amazon IPO episode, um, he, he had mentioned that, uh, Bill Gurley and Frank Quattrone did the, um, did the IPO. And, uh, I didn't really know that, that, you know, Bill was a computer science major before that. And, uh, it's just really interesting to hear about, that's right. That's right. It's super interesting to to think about the you know, the decisions that guy made and the risks that he took and the way that he he looks at the world and the way that he looks at investing. So if you're uh, um, if that's your cup of tea or if any of those things are your cup of tea, I highly recommend listening to Bill because he is a, a sage. He is. He and um, uh, and all the folks at Benchmark they are uh, they are one of the best and a joy to work with and uh, very very good at what they do. My carve out for the week is also a podcast, a really great one. Uh, Jenny, uh, my wife and I were on a road trip recently, and uh, this is a Jenny's a member of Slate Plus. Uh, so this is a, a Slate Plus podcast that you have to be a have to be a uh, subscriber to, but but it's worth subscribing. It's called Pop Race in the '60s, and it's by Jack Hamilton, uh, who's a professor at UVA. And, um, he interviews folks. It's only six episodes. It's a, it's a short series, but it's great. Each episode is about a, a white musician, uh, or musical group from the sixties and a, and a black musical musician or musical group from the sixties, uh, and comparing them against each other and their, uh, how they were viewed by society at the time, uh, and their legacies and impact. Um, and it is, so great. I love 60s music. Grew up listening to all of it. And and Jack actually 
wrote a a book his his first book which was i believe his dissertation uh phd dissertation um called just around midnight which is basically if you can't listen to the podcast this is the podcast in book form um but janis joplin and aretha franklin and Jimi hendrix and bob dylan and the beatles uh, and the stones and talking about the importance of race and the the conversations uh across these groups you know whether it was i didn't realize how often both the Beatles covered Motown songs and Motown artists covered the Beatles throughout their careers. Oh, cool. Uh, super cool. And and also, I know this is uh, going on for a while about this carve out, but I think it's also, as I was listening to it, really applicable to the tech industry. And it made me think about, made me think a lot about San Francisco in the 60s. And uh, so much of that music was coming out of there and the counterculture movement and how wow like the tech movement and silicon valley really was birthed out of the counterculture movement and Hmm. huge driving force of change uh that kind of started in san francisco in the 60s with that counterculture movement and and the legacy you see in that in the tech industry today um so super cool worth worth listening to or if you can't listen to it reading the book we'll link to both in the show notes very cool Well, listeners, thanks for joining us again. If you aren't subscribed and you want to hear more, you can subscribe from your favorite podcast client. If you've been a longtime listener of the show and and want to leave a review, or if you just happen to tune in this one and and, uh, like the episode, either way, we'd love uh, love a review on iTunes. So thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the the NBA playoffs. Go Cavs. (laughs) Go Warriors. And uh, thank you to... That's right. And uh, thank you to our, our sponsor, Silicon Valley Bank. Other than that, we'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.